everybody. Today I'm here with my friend John Chafee. I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kendall. I was looking forward to this. I seriously was for like a couple weeks. Oh, yeah. That's so great to hear. Yeah, so I just thought I'd start out with uh, saying how I kind of um, got introduced to to John. Um, you know, I met a lot of great people on Twitter. Um, and my friend Mandy Capehart actually introduced me to his work, and I started following it, and I just loved it. Um, and you know, he he's very gracious, and on his website, he allows people to, um, you know, uh, talk to him and uh, schedule video conferences. So I did that, and it was amazing. And um, you know, John is a he's a ambitious guy. He 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 uh, has a podcast. He he's written some books. Um, what else do you do, John? <laughs> Oh, I'm just a misfit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm also a, a a part-time professor at Eastern University and its seminary. I teach spiritual formation there, but before that, I did church work and and I did camp ministry stuff for like 20 years. And uh, I saw some of the limitations that happened there, and I saw some of the the glories and the good parts about it as well. But I think I found um, we are we're hitting. There's like a cultural thing happening right now where I think not that religion needs to evolve, but that we need to evolve in our understanding of religion. And that's really what I'm super fascinated by because we we can't discard it. We got to keep it, Mm. but we have to find a way to keep it and hold it today because it's no longer the 1500s. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah. I totally agree. Um, And along those lines, um, you know, you, you recently wrote two books. I, I read them. They were great. Um, and the first one is called Another Name for a Parable. Um, yeah. Do you want to explain that title? And also, why did you write this book? Yeah. Well, uh, first off, the title, no one really knows this. It just makes me laugh. It really <laughs> does. Because I was sitting there and I'm like, man, I don't have a title for this book. What should I call it? And I was like, what's another word for parable? I was like... That's it. That's funny. So oh. rather than trying to come up with an alternative title, it's like, oh, I'll just keep it as a question. Oh, that's funny. But uh, the reason I wrote it is it is that it was actually kind of an accident. Uh, I just started maybe six years ago. I would read another philosophy book or theology or psychology book or something that was incredibly helpful and insightful for me. And at the time... I was working with middle schoolers and high schoolers and I was like, I can't distill, like I can't tell them about a 400 page book by Rene Girard, but Mm -hmm. if I can distill it into stick figures that I can tell as like a short pithy story, I can do that. And I think I had finished reading Martin Buber's I and Thou, which is a fantastic book of philosophy while I also had Pirates of the Caribbean on the TV in the background. And so I decided I want to see if I can write a parable that distilled the insights of I and thou using pirates. And so that's actually the very first parable in the book. It's the the pirate, the parrot, and the compass. And so then it just kickstarted for like a good year and a half. Every time I write a book, I try to write a pithy little thing. And then someone said, you should just put them all in one place. And then 
I was like, okay, I'll just do that. And I put the best of the best in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. And, you know, parables are very close to my heart because, you know, I was an English major in undergrad and, um, you know, I love stories and, and fiction. And I think, you know, I have s- such an appreciation for for fiction and um, myths, parables, these kinds of things. Um, I just I, I think it really helps kind of we think in stories, you know, so it puts us in mm. the moment. It puts us in the story. It helps us think more holistically, I feel like, you know. Um, what would it feel like to be in this story and, um, you know, what is my emotions? What are my thoughts? And, um, so I think it really helps us engage with it. Yeah. And if you want to think of it, like it's a technology, I mean, it's not a smartphone, but stories are a technology to disassemble a thought and reassemble it in a new way. Mm, And that's kind of what stories do. It's definitely what parables do. They take what you thought you knew disassembles it and reassembles it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, um, why are modern parables important? I mean, don't we, we have all the parables we need in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, you could say that that's fine, but modern parables, do we need more of them? Probably because we're in a new world and we're dealing with new things and we've made new advancements. Um, but I think that there's, there's two ways of approaching the Christian faith. Can I can I go like word nerd right now? Oh, yeah, okay. please do. So most people understand Christianity from a soteriological perspective. So soter is the Greek word for savior or save. And so a lot of people approach Christianity in terms of how do we get saved? Okay. However, when you have a framework that has that as its main goal or value, then you overlook wisdom teachings. You like, there's no reason to read the book of Proverbs. There's no reason to read the sermon on the Mount then. However, if you come to the Bible or faith with a Sophio rather than Soterio, um, a sophiology, that means you're looking for wisdom and there's no ceiling to wisdom. Like there's never enough of it. And wise people would just want to keep growing in wisdom. And so, I don't know. It also has helped me to understand that there can be wisdom in other traditions too. That'd be very helpful. Without Mm -hmm. subscribing to a belief structure, you know, that's a really wise thing to say over there. And so, I actually do think we're hitting a certain cusp. And Mm -hmm. uh, I can reference spiral dynamics. But the idea is... A lot of culture used to base its values off of stories. Mm. And then as the scientific revolution came around, we started focusing more of our life and structuring our lives on numbers and what's measurable. But what happens is you don't have values anymore. You just have numbers because values can only be shared by story, which is a fascinating debate. Um, You can interpret numbers, you can add up numbers, but how you interpret the numbers is dependent on your values and that depends on the stories you tell yourself. So the world I actually think is aching for wisdom. It's ache- like we have the internet, the touch of our fingers. We've got a surplus of information and knowledge, but we're completely lacking in wisdom. Oh, and here's another way of thinking about it too. Um, in 
high school, Kendall, what what studies do we have? What classes can you take in high school? English, math, science. Gym, physics, Gym. chemistry, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The classics, what we would say. Right. Have you noticed nowhere in there is there any class devoted to just wisdom? Hmm. Yeah, it's all like knowledge and, and this is what you need yeah. to know. Yeah. It's all about retaining information. And right. there's no classes that teach you how to be a student and even how to be a mentor. Mm. And so there's something desperately lacking in Western culture that we don't know or we don't even value the role of a mentor in the same way. We like coaches mm. who do really good and get people to the Super Bowl. But actually, a lot of the coaches' real power is in the mentoring that happens while teaching football. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. that's great. Um, I think that gets in the whole other conversation that, you know, this is great for another podcast, but just kind of our idealization okay. of adolescence and staying young and, you know, old people, they don't, they don't, they don't know anything. They, they're not in touch with the times and they can't teach us anything. Right. But, right. but wise people, mentors, they would use their own life stories mm, right. to pass on their own life wisdom to the next generation. And so I actually think humanity will always have a need for parables, for storytelling. That will never go away. Right. So it might look different. It might look like a Marvel movie. It might look like uh, The Last of Us TV show. But all of these things are very abstract parables that we're, we're slowly mm-hmm. gleaning wisdom from. Yeah, I totally agree. And even different art forms, music, are, I mean, it's they're telling a story in their own way. Yeah. So uh-huh. uh, I'm all about the arts. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Have you read uh, N's latest book, Curveball? You know, I have it. I've only gotten two chapters in. Okay. Ah, oh, man, I thought it was amazing. But, you know, he kind of goes into how, you know, experience, science. Uh, he even you know, talked about near-death experiences, a lot of these things um, that um, were quantum physics, stuff that's kind of new and emerging and um, talking about how we need to wrestle with these things and um, how they interact with theology and how we need to, you know, rethink theology and, and stuff like that uh, using these things. So, you know, I, like you said, you know, the mo- over time things change and our understanding of the universe changes and that also affects our understanding of theology. So it's important to yeah. uh, try to wrestle with these things. So, well, and it's not um, just yeah. wrestle. It's about integrate. Right. Bring them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say, you know, parables are, are sort of a myth? Well, it depends by what you mean by myth. What do you mean by myth? Well, I guess it's just, it's just uh, I'm thinking of uh, their ways of talking about truth in symbolic uh, in a symbolic manner and, and uh, talking about eternal truth that that um, applies no matter the time period or the age, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, they can certainly touch on it. For me, um, there's kind of three three categories to talk about when we talk about with myth, because mm-hmm. there's 
history, which is strict fact, no narrative structure to it. Then there's saga, which is in the middle of the two. And then on the far side is myth, which is very symbolic, maybe ahistorical. Mm. And uh, myth and parable seem to have some overlap, maybe not completely, but mm. I think we organize our life in myths. And I, by myths, I don't mean untrue. And you already referenced this, but like the Bible is true, but we have to understand true can mean a few things. Like not only did it happen, it's an arrow can fly true. You know, a compass can be true. Somebody's character can be true. So we have to figure out like, does the Bible point people true? Does this parable point people true? Does this parable or this myth keep my internal compass healthy? It's like, yeah, this is a true story. And I, but that's, I think, part of it. And as an English major yourself, you would already know that. Like, so much of literature depends on how we interpret it. But most mm. people don't want to read the Bible as it's literature. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I took a class in grad school called the Bible's Literature, and it, it definitely made me very uncomfortable at the time. <laughs> yeah, but why I was is like, that? Well, it's, it's because it was reading the Bible in its genre, and, and what does that mean? And, you know, a lot of my beliefs were being challenged and, and um, but I couldn't, I couldn't fault him. I was like, Oh, I was English major. This is what you do. You have to understand um, books in their genre and that affects the meaning of, of what they're trying to say and the way we think about the story itself. So uh, yeah. it's ultimately really good for me. And uh, I really appreciate the, the class. And as a library of literature, even the books change genre within the Bible. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's that's a tricky thing. It's a real tricky yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. And and uh, undergrad, I was kind of referencing myth because I read the Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. Um, oh yeah, have you read yeah, uh, was, uh, a hero with a thousand faces too? I need to. I haven't yet. <laughs> okay, I'm sure they touch on similar things. Right, right. But that that was really powerful for me. Really huge. Um, and I, I love Campbell now. So yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to uh, read one of your parables. Sure. Let's – I'll read two of them. I won't read the last one because that one's really good. <laughs> Even though it's <laughs> – you'll, you'll have to get the book for that. That's right. Uh, so the last section are parables with biblical references. So they reference like prophets or angels or Moses or something else. Uh, but this one I really enjoy. It actually, oh, I'm sorry. There we go. The shaman and the great fish It's just before that section. And, uh, you're probably going to notice what's going on when you read it or when you hear it. Here we go. This is shaman and the great fish. The shaman had enough. The unspoken resentment had finally hit its full crescendo and it could not be hidden or avoided any longer. Exhausted and frustrated from praying to the god of the great river, the great fish, the shaman picked up his red spear and sought to hunt down the watery beast. Being the shaman had long since ceased to bring him favor or fortune. 
After three days of wading on his canoe in the middle of the great river, the shaman saw the fin of the great fish rise above the surface of the water. Standing up on his canoe, the shaman readied his red spear and waited for the right moment. And as the great fish came close, it rose its head out of the waters and pierced the shaman with its gaze first. Friend, drop your spear, give up your quest to kill me. I am not your god, nor am I your enemy. You pray to me, thinking that I need to be persuaded, appeased, or overcome. The reality is that I am in the world just as you are. I differ in size, but I am a creature just like you, and there is a code that all of us cannot help but live and die by, a code that neither of us has written and neither of us fully can comprehend. The code is that of love and dignity and unity between all that is different. Utterly shocked at what he heard, the shaman lowered his spear. I've lived my entire life in service to you. And the tradition that surrounds you, I've wasted my best years protecting the religion of you. Do not give up your practices, friend. They've brought you thus far and it's time for them to take you further. That being said, you may need to redirect them. Recenter them on the one who holds us both in life and death. Your piety has served you thus far. Now it is time for it to blossom even further. I am less your God than I am a signpost pointing toward an even greater one. So what I like to do, I've done a few events uh, about this book. I sit down with a group of people and I read one and then I say, what do you think it's about before (laughs) I share my interpretation? And it's so fun because like I'll hear five, six alternative interpretations like oh i never thought of that that was really good i'm the one that wrote it but man so we actually bring a lot of our own personhood life story to these parables and that's there's no wrong answer Hmm. but as your first hearing of it what do you think the the interpretation or purpose of the parable is yeah um it really reminds me of i'm sure you know the um, um, maester eckhart uh i pray god rid me of god um, oh yeah, and uh-huh. and just that we, you know, God God is is beyond our comprehension, and I think often you know we we think oh this is who God is, and you know we we practice our life around that image of God, and we protect Him, or um, or you know some people are angry at that picture of God and they're fighting against Him, but. Um, there comes a time, hopefully, you know, when you're like, oh, you know what? This is just an image of God and, and there's some things right about it, but there's things wrong, some things wrong about it. And it's time to grow and progress to a greater um, image of God, knowing that as we try to understand God, mo- God more, we're still going to form images because we can't comprehend him fully. Yeah. Yeah. And even as you were saying that, I, I was thinking of... Uh... There's this quote that's, I think it's from Richard Rohr. He talks about how mystery is not something unknowable. Mystery is something endlessly knowable. I'm like, mm. oh, like you can always learn more. I love that. What, what I think is interesting, for me, that parable, it, it touches very heavily on what's called spiral dynamics, red and blue. Okay. And even purple. So purple mm. 
the color codes are different worldviews. Mm-hmm. And early worldview is called purple, or one of them, where there's a shaman and he's the holder of the tradition and he relates to the gods on behalf of the people. But he's tired of it. He's done. He's done doing the purple game. So he picks up his red spear, which is spiral red, when someone says, I will kill the gods and I'll become a god myself. So he goes out to the river to kill the god that he was living in slavery to, only to find out that that watery beast was already at like spiral dynamics <laughs> turquoise way higher. <laughs> like, buddy, don't kill me. This this mystery is even – it even includes me. I believe in something larger than even me. So I think that there's something to be said. Like religion shouldn't be discarded because it feels regressive. It needs to be, the term is transcended and included. It needs to be reinterpreted. It needs to find its way to still give its gifts in the world that we have now. So it's not that we discard it. It's that we let it blossom. I think that's the word I used in there. We have to let it continue to evolve. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I love it. Was that? I like that one. I've shared, yeah. I've shared that oh, with some I other people, it. and they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. I mean, it helps that I've really got into spiral dynamics, and and your uh, podcasts on them are also great. Um, so, yeah, it, I think it's great. <laughs> but do you see yourself in that parable at all? That's the question. That's that's when mm-hmm. parables take their coup de gras. Yeah. Well, it's funny though, you know, even, um, as, uh, I hopefully continue to develop and, and, and feel like I, I see God in new ways, you know, there's always a temptation to be like, okay, now I've, now I figured it out and yeah. now I need to go shake everyone and be like, this is, this is the way, this is who he yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the temptations too, um, there's a strong temptation to look down on people who aren't mm-hmm. where we are. Right. But the reality is we were once where they are now and that's right. a part of the path. Mm-hmm. So we always have to recognize if somebody is at an earlier stage of the path, that's okay. The only thing we can do is hold the door open for them when they're ready to walk through it on their own. Right. And, and also there's so many facets to life where, you know, in, in some respects, you know, I might be ahead of someone in this way, but in other ways, they're, they're way ahead of me in this way. So yeah. um, that, I think that just creates humility to, you know, we can, we're the learners and we're the teachers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's well, well worded. Yeah. Thank you. Should I uh, read another one? The Nicodemus one? Oh yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the Nicodemus one, It's a little autobiographical. That's probably why I like Mm. it. Here we go. (laughs) It's called Nicodemus Goes Back to Work, (laughs) which is such a funny (laughs) title. (laughs) He he gets up the next day. It's a Tuesday. (laughs) All right. Morning came. The sunlight shattered through the window and Nicodemus felt more alive than ever. After that riveting late-night conversation with the Nazarene, Nicodemus could barely sleep. 
His mind was racing and all of his previous training made more and more sense than ever now that he saw what it was all pointing toward. With fervor and excitement in his step, Nicodemus washed his face, said his morning prayers, put on his robes, and headed out to meet his Pharisee brothers. They gathered on the street corner just like usual and talked about the tasks and duties of the day. But it all felt stifled, flat, uninspiring. Nicodemus stood there silently as they talked about the ceremonial cloths, the upcoming services, the choice of psalms for that week and the scriptures to be read, how to talk about raising monies for the temples, how others were misreading and disobeying the laws, and who most deserves to become a high priest next year. Hmm. It went on and on and on. In the past, Nicodemus would have been fully engaged in the conversation. He would have been making points and counterpoints, feeling as though that was exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. But again, it all felt so small, confining, predictable. The conversation with the Nazarene changed everything. The previous night, Nicodemus was asked, You are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? He felt foolish that he hadn't seen through it all earlier. But what could he do? He used to think the faith was all about what the Pharisees were debating right in front of him, but not any longer. All of these things are good and possibly necessary, but they are not an end unto themselves. Hmm. It's about everything. It's about something so much larger than those things. The wind blows wherever it pleases. And Nicodemus couldn't feel the breeze under all those robes. And that's how it ends. Mm. I love that. Just You feel that emotion that the connection really gets you in the story. I, I think it's so easy to, you know, we read the Bible. You know, we grow up Christian, we read the Bible. And it can get stale if we don't see it anew and, and put ourselves in the, in the story itself and, and color it, you know. So I love that. I love... I mean, personally, I love the final line. He couldn't feel the breeze under all those Pharisee robes. <laughs> That's such because uh, the was it the Hebrew and the Greek word for spirit also means wind or breeze, right. not mm. just breath. And I like the idea that sometimes tradition can get in the way of experiencing mm. the breeze, the spirit. And so, I mean, I worked in church world and ministry world and camp ministry world for twenty years. And I was, I know those conversations. They're week in, week out. What, what songs, what liturgical season is it? You know, but when that, when the tradition comes to be about protecting the tradition, rather than letting the tradition be how, how do we help people experience spirit? That's a completely different game. Hmm. You know, a completely mm-hmm. different game. Yeah, yeah, and even you know, of course, of course, I love you love um, and Pharisees love you know talking about theology and mm-hmm. discussing the ins and out of it, and and that's important, and that's good, but it's like you know, are, are you are you living it? And you know, <laughs> there's there's too much. <laughs> yeah, there can be too much. Have you ever heard of a? Well, the way I talk about it, I forget what the name of it is called. I call it uh, Three Ways of Experiencing the Sunset. 
okay? The first is you notice the sunset, right? That It's better than not observing it. You're walking by and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a nice sunset. And then you just keep walking. That's just the first step. The second step is when you look at the sunset and then you explain, be like, oh, it's orange and red and yellow because at that angle, the sunlight's coming through thicker atmosphere than it was at high day because of the angle of the curvature mm-hmm. of the earth and that refracts the light. So now I see it as this beautiful, deep red and candy, what is it? Mm. Cotton candy color, right? But that's the second level. The third level of experiencing the sunset is when you say, I am participating in the sunset. I am, I am here with it. And actually it is actually observing me back. So there's like a mutuality. There's an intersubjectivity. And I hear a lot of theology and God talk as the second form of experiencing. We're talking about it. We're explaining it. It's, it's fine. That's good. Maybe it's necessary to pass through that. But that's still not the same thing as actually experiencing it. You know? Wow. Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it. I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I, I can get caught in that myself and be like, man, this is this is starting to lose its flavor. It's like I, I'm just I'm just speaking words and, and concepts and, and I'm not I'm not feeling it in my body. I'm not being like, oh, how does this actually work in life? And, and why am I even arguing talking about this? <laughs> right. Right. Well, and that's uh that's what the word Catholic actually means. It breaks down into two parts, kata and halas. Halas meaning a whole part or a thing. And then kata meaning concerning. So the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith means this concerns the whole of a person. Hmm. This concerns the whole of everything. But we love to make it uh, explicable so then we can control it so that we aren't uh, surprised challenge us yeah right. yeah 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 no yeah. longer challenges us yeah mm-hmm. mm, that's great well do you want to m- move on to the the second book sure yeah yeah this is great because um, you know I grew up Church of Christ and, and we don't really you know like I didn't even know what the word Lent was for the longest time um, oh yeah so uh, this is, you know, the, the subtitles, a Lenten daily devotional. Um, so tell us for, for those of us that aren't as familiar, what is Lent? So, uh, Lent is the 40 day season leading up to Easter. It comes shortly after Christmas tide, which is the season that comes after Advent. Most people don't know about that. Advent goes from roughly Thanksgiving up until Christmas day. Then there's Christmas tide, the 12 days of Christmas after, uh, December 25th. But then Lent starts with Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday is the day in which we remember our mortality. But uh, the 40 days are meant to be, it's called, a, <coughs> there's a special word for it, a something repetition. We're supposed to be repeating the experience of Jesus' 40 days in the desert, mm. where we go through an intentional lack, an intentional deprivation of usual comforts so that we can in some way echo uh, 
Jesus's time in the desert. But then it culminates with Holy Week, uh, Palm Sunday, and then the events of Easter week, and then obviously Easter Sunday. So mm. Lent is commonly understood to be a season of reflection and fasting and intentional trying to go into depths. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Um, after reading about it, I was like, oh, it's, it's kind of like the dark night of the soul. Would you, would you say that? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, an intentional excursus through a dark night on purpose. Mm. Which, yeah. that, you know what? That's a great question. Why is it that some traditions avoid it then? Maybe mm. they just want to be different from Catholic, you know? Mm-hmm. But maybe, I mean, this is my opinion. I think a lot of people are very terrified of a dark night of the soul. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, don't blame them. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> uh, I, uh, this past Tuesday night, I teach a, a seminary class on Tuesdays. And we did a whole three-hour lecture on the dark night of the soul. And we broke it down into the four parts of uh, what, what's the process that happens and we all agreed in the classroom that most churches keep people stuck in the first stage of the dark night of the soul and don't want them to go into stage two, three, and four, which is where, according to St. John the Cross, that's where real maturity happens. Mm-hmm. So on another point, maybe we could talk about, I actually think a lot of our churches unintentionally are keeping people in spiritual arrested development. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, um, but that's what Lent is. Well, do you do you do you want to uh, break down a little bit the four different parts? I'm really curious about about what those are. The Dark Knight of the Soul. Mm-hmm. The four different. Uh, parts. Yeah, you know what? That actually might go well with also what okay. the the Lenten devotional does with um, its themes. Okay, mm. so most people don't know that. The Dark Knight of the Soul is written by a man named St. John of the Cross, who was a, a Carmelite. He was a member of the Catholic Church in the 1500s. And he was a young and idealistic guy. And so he went through seminary. And then he said, hey, guys, I think we can do this better. Just shape it up a bit. And his Bible <laughs> professors uh, kidnapped him, threw him in a latrine, and they left him there for nine months, giving him stale bread and only taking him out to beat him. That's his Bible professors. This is a latrine that was probably not large enough to stand up in nor large enough to lay down in. So he lived a crouched experience for nine months in complete darkness. He wasn't given paper or pens to write anything. But one of the ways he stayed sane was he would comprise or or compose Spanish love poetry to God. And so he would write it in his head, remember it, and then recite it maybe millions of times over nine months. And uh, we believe that he got out out of the generosity of one of the guards who left the door unlocked and he bolted in the middle of the night. Uh, but then he left and he started telling this poetry and people started asking, what does this mean? And so he wrote a commentary on his own poem. And that's what I'm about to explain right here with the four stages. Okay. But it's really a love poem. And most people don't realize that they actually assume the dark night of the soul is depression and doubt and angst, anxiety and hell, but it's not, but he says there's 
there's two parts of the dark night of the soul, and each of those two parts have two parts. Okay. The first pair is the dark night of the senses. Okay. And then the, the second pair is the dark night of the soul. It goes like this. Stage one is when we actively give up vices and sins, especially ones that quote our sensory, the dark night of the senses. We give up just like in Lent, we give up sugar, we give up chocolate, we give up cake, we give up alcohol, heroin, we give up adultery, whatever. You give up all those things. And a lot of churches give a thumbs up of approval to people when they clean up their lives in that way. And that's good. They need to do that because their life is a wreck. And during stage one, people start going to church, attend Bible studies, join a community. So those things are pretty good. And people usually get uh, a sweetness. There's like a different senses. You give up certain vices and the sensation you get from those and you trade them out for virtues and the sensations you get from living virtuously. But then comes stage two where we passively lose the sweetness of those things. Meaning, Bible study is like ash. Prayer means nothing to you. You don't want to go to church. Songs and hymns mean nothing to you. They don't activate you in any sense. You have no, quote, spiritual high anymore. You know, you've, you're no longer on a mountaintop experience at every church service. Now you're just like, this sucks. Okay. And that's stage two. And a lot of people, especially in American culture are already in stage two, but then they go to churches. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people in American culture are actually then trying to go back to their church. And they're like, they say to their pastors, I don't care about church or Bible study or prayer. All of it's ash. I don't care. I don't want to do this stuff. I get no high out of it. Am I no longer a good Christian? And if it's a bad pastor, they'll be like, you probably have unrepentant sin. you know. Or they might say, you know, the problem is you shouldn't be attending a Bible study. Now you should be leading one. And then make the problem even worse. Hmm. So that's stage two. And most people start to get worried when they start entering stage two because they think that they're losing the faith. But then comes stage three, and this is when we shift into, into the dark night of the soul. Stage three is when we actively question the teachings and the instructions and the theology that we are handed. Maybe not completely. Maybe just like parts of it. Like maybe that part over there wasn't right. Maybe that was the opinion of my mentor or my pastor, but that's not what everybody says. And so people start to question their own theology and especially the theology of their superiors that taught them. Now, if you go to your pastor and you essentially say things like, oh, I'm in stage three. I question everything you've ever taught me. A pastor like that might be terribly insecure and be like, you are losing the faith. You're no longer one of us. Uh, I know how to interpret Christianity. You've lost the way. And people further walk away from the church. I think a lot of people in the deconstruction movement probably pass through stage two and are already in stage three of the dark night of the soul. Okay. And then here comes stage four. And this is where the big punch is. 
Uh, three is when we actively give up teachings that we no longer think are helpful for us. Uh, that that uh, Meister Eckhart quote of, uh, I pray God rid me of God. Stage four is when we passively lose the sweetness, not of worship music or prayer or Bible studies or community, but of faith itself. Hmm. And this is when somebody functionally feels like they're an atheist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel nothing. This is Mother Teresa of Calcutta and all of her journals for 40, 50 years when she said, I experienced darkness. I have nothing when I, when I pray to God. I feel nothing, but I'll still living in service. But the real, the real past, <coughs> the thing that's happening in the dark night of the soul is at every single stage, different idols that we prop ourselves up with are being taken away. So for instance, you're no longer stage one. You're no longer allowed to be proud of what vices you've given up. Stage two, you're not allowed to be addicted to the sweetness of being close to God rather than God himself. Stage three, you're, you're no longer allowed to be proud of how certain your theology is. Which is like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Stage four, you're not even allowed to make an idol of your own faith. If you're putting faith in how much faith you think you have, that's still putting faith in the wrong things, which is still an idol, even though it sounds pious. So if you wake up on a Tuesday and you're like, man, I've got so much faith today. And then on Wednesday, you're like, I got nothing. It doesn't matter because on both of those days, you're making the mistake of putting faith in how much faith you think you have. And so when all these crutches are taken away, when all these supports are, are stripped bare, there's nothing left to do except to fall. And then you fall into the hands of God. And then you realize, oh, God's been faithful all along, even though I had secret idols the whole way. And uh, so the Dark Knight of the Soul is really a romance poem about every false lover is taken away from you, no matter how pious they sound. And if, but I mean, John of the Cross probably went through all four of these stages while he's in a latrine, while being beaten by his Bible professors in complete darkness, probably saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. Literally. Mm -hmm. And then he comes out on the other side being like, God is good, not because of anything any of us have ever done, but solely because of the unconditional love that sustains me even through my supposed atheism. Wow. So for me, I'm like, oh, the dark night of the soul is utterly brilliant. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, when I worked in churches, I was actually told not I wasn't allowed to teach it. <laughs> I'm like, why? This is beautiful stuff. But to the ministry machine once people enter stages two three and four most ministry machines have no idea what to do with them mm. and unfortunately yeah. john of the cross says uh, be careful who you talk to about the dark night of your soul because unless they've gone through it first they will give you bad advice and they'll just tell you to run on the treadmill of stage one harder mm. Wow. So yeah. first thoughts, how does that sound to you? I hope I didn't word vomit too much. No, that was beautiful. That was, that was great. And, um, 
Yeah, I could just say you know that that feels uh, feels accurate, feels um, familiar. Um, have you read uh, or heard of uh, Jim Marion, The Mind of Christ? That book. Yes, I have. I actually have it over here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I th- you know, I think he goes in the since the synthesis of spiral dynamics and um, the Dark Knight of the Soul and, and kind of that that whole spiritual journey and path. And you know, I think we both love to see models of. Um, you know, spiritual growth and, and what that looks like and, and how, how it can progress to that and kind of a, just a model to, to look at, to help. Yeah. To be honest, I actually shared this over zoom early on in COVID and, uh, it was just Mm. a small class. There was maybe like 15, maybe 20. And there was a mother there and she was quiet the whole time. She was a mother of four. All of her kids were under seven or eight years old. So she was swamped with life, but she was quiet and she, but she was locked in. Like, Oh, it was almost as though for the whole hour we were talking through it. She didn't even blink. And at the very end, she spoke up and said, John, this was one of the most helpful faith conversations I've ever had. I said, well, why? Thank you so much for sharing. She said, because this whole time for years, I thought and I was made to feel like I was losing faith and you just told me I've actually been maturing in it. And that it utterly reframed it for her. And she said, this was the best hour and a half I've spent in years talking about faith. And to me, that's why um, the tradition is so much more wild and wise and beautiful when you scratch beneath the surface and you figure out what some of these best saints and hermits and mystics and holy sages say, you're like, oh, I was told all these people were dangerous, (laughs) but they're really just dangerous to the status quo. These people are actually incredibly liberating when you actually learn what Augustine really says about sin. Okay. What, Julian really meant when she said, all will be well, all will be well. You start realizing this is actually where the Christian faith is. It's not on the Barnes Noble bookshelf of books that were written in the past 20 years. Hmm. So I've become more of a historic Christian, but I actually feel like it's a strange thing. I feel as though I I fit in less, but I feel more Christian than ever. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean that 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 whole journey really connects with me, and yeah, it connects with so many. Um, you know, deconstructing and um, you know trying to to find a, a more or true and authentic faith. Um, so, really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the themes you talk about, uh, and this goes along with it, is is the importance of silence and reflection. And um, yeah, I, w- I was reminded of a book I read actually freshman year of. Uh, high school called The Chosen by Chaim Potok. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. I've. Is that the. That's not the same thing. I've read. My name is Asher Lev, and I think The Gift he, of Asher Lev. Book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But. I haven't read The Chosen. He, it's, it's, it's about a Hasidic Jew in New York, and his dad actually um, didn't talk to him for like. Uh, I, I can't remember, but a couple years, and uh, talked to his brother and. You know, obviously that was very hard for him, um, and you know you can debate the ethics of that. But um, he was teaching him the uh, importance of, of silence and 
and how God sometimes feels silent to us and what we can learn from that. And uh-huh. man, that is really stuck with me. <laughs> the silence of God. Yeah. What, why is that a theme that stands out for you? What's the reason? Well, I, I think, you know, kind of, it's, it's like sometimes we need to lean in and, and, um, it's like a drawing in maybe, or just like all the things that we thought were ways God was talking to us no longer work. And so it's like, he's drawing us deeper into that relationship. And so it's like, what is this relationship developing into? What does it look Mm -hmm. like to have this relationship? So, um, and, and through that, you, God will again, start talking and, um, it'll be a richer relationship than before. Yeah. There's a, is it Martin Scorsese? He did a version of uh, the movie Silence by Shusaku Endo. And I watch mm. it every Good Friday. Um, it's about two Jesuit missionaries to Japan. And what do they experience when in the face of persecution, there's just utter silence from God mm. in their prayer life? I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like, hands down. Hands down. If you haven't read I've it, I've heard of it. I, I, I want oh, it. It's buddy. on my list. <laughs> oh man, I think if you can, it's a long movie. It's three hours, and if you can sit down in a dark place and watch it straight through, I, it's almost impossible to finish the book or the movie called Silence without saying, "I need to talk about this with someone." <laughs> and it. it it's so wonderful to me because it doesn't do what American evangelicalism sometimes does, which is try to make the faith triumphant, mm. you know? And this mm. is this is not triumphant in that way. This is a weak faith. This is a faith that's like grounded in reality and it looks at suffering. And it really is – That's excuse me. That's why I like to watch it on Good Friday. I think silence yeah. in um I actually talk about it a number of times in, in Echoes in the Desert is our lives are dominated by hurry, noise, and crowds. And the only mm-hmm. three antidotes to those things are silence and stillness and solitude. And if your life is dominated by hurry, noise, and crowds, you should just expect that you will always have a shallow faith. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I went through a, a period where, uh, well, I still do a lot. Um, you know, it, it, when, when our car is traveling places, we're listening to music, whatever. But I, I just stopped. And, and that's really uncomfortable at first. Um, yeah, it is. But, you know, just, just sitting in that silence. Um, and now a lot of times I listen to podcasts, but still sometimes. And, um, I mean, it's actually very enjoyable. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> take a breath, you know, <laughs> reflect. Yeah. Um, you're actually letting the CPU of your brain catch up its processing. Mm. It's like there are mm-hmm. files that are waiting to be downloaded or files that are waiting to be converted, and your brain finally has a chance to do that. All right. Oh, and another thing you said uh, about, you know, uh, that that you, you start going into the Beatitudes and talking about those and how uh, you really explain them well, I think, in that it's not so much about – um, blessed are those who have achieved this certain um, state or, or a way of being, but it, it's about those who are trying and 
they're yeah. also suffering. It's like, blessed are those who are suffering and who are broken. And, um, you know, it might not always look great or, um, but, but I see their heart and I see their yeah. effort and that's what's, um, so important to me. So like, blessed are those who thir- hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't say blessed are they because they're doing the right thing now. Blessed are they because they just want it, man. They don't know how to do it. Their life is a wreck, but at least they they wish they could. And what I like about it, I mean, the good news has got to be good news for the people on the bottom. If the good news is only good news for people on the top, that's just the usual status quo, man. That's what life already is. And so I love the idea that the the gospel is about taking the pyramid of power and inverting Mm it. Yeah. Oh, man. The pyramid so of great. favor and, and blessedness, yeah, and inverting mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just think so many times I've seen in Christian circles, like, um, people who are broken and, 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 like, I need help with this. And then the people in charge are kind of like, you know, it's like, it's like oh, they're the project. They're the ones that need looking after there. But but it, it feels so disingenuous because it's like... Mm the leaders are acting like they have it all together or they, they, they have the answers and, um, right. Man. It's like those people actually might be, um, you know, further along the faith journey cause they're, 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 they're questioning, they're, they're thinking they're struggling where, um, they're being more authentic about themselves and what they're going through than these people in power who are more, you know, putting on an image Right. Well, and if you think about, all right, let's think about a pharaoh over Egypt. He's at the top of a pyramid. The only movement you can do from the top is down. And he doesn't want that. So he's going to fight intensely to stay at the top and to maintain the public narrative that he should be at the top. Mm -hmm. So... That's one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that it takes people at the bottom and it gives them a voice because there are some truths that can only be said from the bottom, not from the top, Hmm. which is, I mean, that's the prophets were always on the fringes. Amos wasn't even a priest. Amos was a farmer and he says it. He's like, guys, I just rake and I hoe fields. (laughs) And from out here, I know what God's trying to say, and you guys still can't hear it. You're like, wow. There's something really funny about Amos, just real fast. Mm-hmm. Like, the Amos, God speaks to Amos and tells him to say to the people, away with your festivals and services. I hate your noisy worship, uh, but let justice <laughs> roll down like a, no- like a mountain or like a river from on top of the mountain, right? Uh, I can picture Amos hoeing in the fields. <gasps> And he hears the worship music in the temple, mm-hmm. just a few, or the synagogue, just like a half mile down the road, and be like, "God, those people are are annoying." He's like, <laughs> he's like, man, it's like, do they not see the injustice happening a half mile down the road that way? And they're over there singing in their synagogues. So, mm. I don't know, man. It's a spirit comes and goes where it will. And it won't be confined to just the top of the pyramid. Won't be confined to the people that have the robes or the degrees or the titles. And so that's the Jesus movement is really 
glorious and surprising and subversive and rebellious and holistic and katahala catholic in its original mm-hmm. sense mm. and uh like i understand in in modern culture we might say there's no need for parables or just to do something for lent but i don't know what it's like for you but the more i study what ancient christianity is the more i'm like oh this really is one of the most beautiful gifts to humanity that's ever happened it's just a shame yeah. american culture has made a mutation of it right i think i was just talking to uh, a student um who's uh getting her degree master's degree in early christian studies and how it's uh so freeing the more we learn about um early christian history and, and the diversity of views and and the discussion and um you know before Things got so settled on, you know, this is heresy, this is not. And yeah. um, just a, a freedom to discuss these things and consider these things and have alternate ideas and views. And um, th- there's just such a rich richness to to the whole history. And and one of the things I wanted to do in the Echoes devotional is show how a lot of the passages that we read in the New Testament have echoes that started in the old Testament. So mm. for instance, I'm not sure if you've gotten to the part, maybe you've read ahead. I don't know, but I finished it. That one. Oh, okay. Uh, Jonah is asleep under the bow of the boat during a storm mm-hmm. and he's suicidal. He's like, guys, just throw me overboard. It's because of me. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But he won't kill himself because it's against Jewish religion. But he says to them, just throw me overboard. And that will appease Yahweh. But then you flash forward to the New Testament and Jesus is asleep under the bow of the boat during a storm. And he comes up and he's not suicidal. He's the opposite. He's like, oh, everything's fine. They're like, what? We're about to die. (laughs) And then he doesn't call out to God because he is God. He just raises his hand. The storm stops. And then it's so remarkable. The disciples then are more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm. They say, who is this that the wind and waves obey even him? Mm. Um, There's a a very strong reverence. But I think that's part of it. Like Many of us were taught the story of Jonah and the whale. And that's only one of four chapters of the book of Jonah. It's not even the main part of the story. Right. And when we've been handed a Christianity that doesn't make those connections, of course we're going to say it's pretty easy to debunk it. But and here's a thought for um, your literature background too, right? Conservatives will read the book of Jonah and say, this must have happened because it's historical. If it didn't happen, there's nothing to learn from it. Obviously, he was swallowed by a whale. In Hebrew, the phrase mm-hmm. is hadag hagadol, which, just, which means large fish. Liberals might go the other direction and be like, this never could have happened. So this story is stupid. No reason to read it because it's ahistorical in their worldview. But to the person that actually values Christianity sociologically, we might say, I don't care if it's literal or not. Because the real story is, do you know how to go and preach repentance to your oppressors? Because Jonah had to go preach to the Assyrian Empire, who were the worst people to Jews. 
And so he's also preaching across racial lines, economic lines, oppressive lines. And so as long as we're debating the historicity of Jonah being swallowed by a whale, we're not really getting around to the point of, do you know how to love your enemies? Right. And are you okay if Yahweh even chooses to be good to them too? Hmm. That's what the book of Jonah is really about. But we've, we've shrunken it down because that's too... That gets too close to the nerves. So let's just talk about a whale. All right. So I wanted to make yeah. some of those connections. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. One part I really love is when you talked about Jesus and you said he not only shows us what it means to be more divine, but also more human and that they're not exclusionary things. Right. Yeah. So a lot of us were taught an either or dichotomy of I need to be either human or be divine, not realizing that to be human is to be divine because the divine mm. became human. Mm. <laughs> like you follow the logic, like, oh my gosh, I see it now. But mm. that that's kind of a critique against the Christianity that says the best way to be holy is to escape being human. Mm. No, the issue is if you want to be holy, you need to learn how to be properly human. So why not learn from the most human one? Yeah. I think that's beautiful. That. That's like, that's yeah, game that is beautiful. <laughs> but yeah. what and made that one stand with... out for you, though? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, just makes it more relatable. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Jesus calls us to, to be like him. And, you know, he tells his disciples, you do even greater things. And I think sometimes we can be so busy worshiping Jesus that we're not, trying to be like him or or, or, we're Mm. it's almost like uh, I mean I think it's good attention trying to be humble but then we almost hold ourselves back in um, what God can accomplish through us right absolutely and then we take Christianity and we make it into a spectator sport where we're like at a soccer stadium we sit back and watch Jesus score all the goals (laughs) I mean in it, maybe if you want to stretch the analogy further, he's more like the soccer coach. He's Ted Lasso, mm-hmm. who like believes in us and actually thinks that we're capable of being good people. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I don't know. I, I really, I've long since shifted out of that worldview that says that we sit back and we let God save the world, not realizing God wants right. to save the world through us. Yeah, following in oh, the man. footsteps of the the Soter. Mm, I love it. And it kind of goes into the next thing about um, you really go into rhythms and seasons. You talk about desert and forest. Um, You know, I've heard all your stuff. So I know you like the Franciscans and St. Francis and the focus on nature. And uh, it's all very grounded. And I mean, I I love nature and it it, I feel really connected to God in nature. And, uh, you know, it's so easy in the modern day to get disconnected from nature and these rhythms and these seasons. And, uh, I mean, I definitely think it does a number on our, our health and mental well being, emotional, all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, and I remember one time, um, I was inside and I was worried, anxious, thinking about all these things. And I just walk outside and I see the vastness of the sky and, and just the difference of being inside and, and, and your world is so small. And then you get outside and you're like, Oh, it's so much bigger. And you, you hear the birds chirping and you hear nature and it slows you down. You're like, Oh, 
life is so much bigger than my little problem problems and and I'm I just need a a bigger perspective and to feel nature and how it works and that's so so soothing and 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 grounding absolutely and I think that there's something naturally calming about the color green mm, yeah. you know and if you think about it no one paints the inside of their house green the walls mm. but we have to we have to put plants in our house and usually people have like two or three plants at a time but we used to live surrounded by green and that's mm. not what we do anymore so i i think yeah. that you're right there's some holistic health that happens mhm yeah um and then I, I i appreciate how you then talk about how sometimes cycles seasons can become unhealthy and how we need to break them so again that spiritual journey that um a call to to greater um greater faith in more nuanced or whatever um yeah yeah a, a good dichotomy another rhythm you could say is fasting and feasting Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, American culture loves to feast, and so we don't know how to fast. But then mm-hmm. you could be um, a type of person that maybe has a scarcity mindset, and then you overindulge mm-hmm. in fasting. You forget how to party every so often. <laughs> you know, right? I think people forget that Jesus also went to parties, and <laughs> you know, he, he enjoyed himself. Yeah. Well, he also made parties happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. right. So that also tells you something. That means that for for Jesus, holiness is not a matter of avoiding parties. Mm -hmm. So, oh, here's a great one. Have you ever, uh, now my brain is just getting excited. Um, (laughs) In John chapter 2, when Jesus makes water into wine, he uses it, he uses jars. Do you remember the story? And -hmm. there's six jars. And so he fills them with water and he turns them into wine. It actually says that those jars were originally meant for purification services, for mikvahs, for for baptisms. And so a great critique that I heard once, I'm not sure where it was, was, is your understanding of the faith more based upon purity or around enjoyment? Hmm. And if your faith system is still based in a purity-based worldview, it's not bad, but at a certain point, your faith needs to be transformed like water into wine, and you have to realize that faith is not really about purity. It's about enjoying life deeply, Mm. meaningfully, and truthfully. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I thought that that's really fascinating. Jesus looks at purity things, and he's like, yeah, we're going to use this for a different purpose. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Wow. Um, that may, makes me think of, you know, your also faith, your, your journey being about fear and, oh, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this versus what should I do based on love and, yeah. uh, the outflow that relationship I have with God and that love and then the outflow of that to others. Yeah. Have you, um, have you ever heard that section from Philippians two? For uh, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will op- will confess that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> I was actually getting to that. I was like, oh, you? do you want to talk about your final theme of of of, of the book? Let's t- let's do it then. Let's just jump to that. That's great. Say more. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, I just wanted to open it up to you. You know, 
(laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, here's, here's the thing is I think that Christianity, real Christianity, is hidden in all the passages of the New Testament that we avoid. Uh, mm. I think that there's a lot of singular passages that when you read through it, your brain just wants to skip over it because you're like, that changes things. But yeah. then when you start highlighting them and you put them all together, you're like, oh, this is a very different thing happening. So, for instance, um, I remember being in seminary and we were sitting in a class and we were reading through Romans and we got to Romans eleven thirty two where it says, uh, there's different translations of it, but... God saw that all were disobedient and so he's chosen to be merciful to all. I remember being like, wait, what? what? Why does it say all? What does all mean? God's merciful to all? What the hell does that mean about hell? We never <laughs> talked about it. I'm like, literally, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, right. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. But I, I always kind of kept it like uh, Mary. I pondered it in my heart alone when nobody was around. Mm. And uh, I... I started reading other passages. I got to like Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Peter says something, starting in verse 19. Repent and turn from your sins that favor might come from the Lord. That one day after he has been received in heaven for long enough, Christ will return for the restoration of all things as foretold by the prophets of old. And the restoration of all things, it's like that word all again. I'm like, what's going on here? And what does that mean? Everything will be restored. Everything will be fixed. Everything, everything. What's happening? And no one would ever read that passage. On Pentecost, we read Acts 2, but we don't read Acts 3. And we never pay attention to the fact that the book of Acts never says the word hell. Neither does Paul in all of his literature. Neither does John's gospel or his letters. Like, what is happening? And... The fascinating thing is the phrase restoration of all things, and then I'll get to Philippians, is this word uh, apokatastasis, which means a return to original stasis, a return back to where things were. It actually originated as an astrological term referencing the moon, which is fascinating. The moon has an orbit, it leaves, but then it comes back to its original position. And the idea is that in Christ, all things will be returned to their original position. And I was so fascinated because it's Peter in that moment saying, as foretold by the prophets, which means for all the doom and gloom and damnation and um, conviction of the Hebrew prophets, Peter still on the whole was like, yeah, they're about restoration, not damnation. Mm. Like, This is the first Pope of the church. Why aren't we talking about this? Mm -hmm. And then I came across other passages such as uh, John 11, 32, when the son of man is lifted up, uh, he will gather or drag all people to himself. Drag is the word there. It's the same verb that's used for fishing nets, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, 1 John 2, 2, for we know that he is the savior, not only of our sins, but for the sins of the whole cosmos. Like, what? Then you read other passages, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 10, where it says, uh, for we know that Christ is the savior of all people, especially those that believe. Why does it say especially? What's up with that? It's because to be a Christian means that you're in on the joke early. You know the punchline's coming, 
everybody it's like i mean it's kind of cool when you're at a party and you know somebody's telling a joke you're like this is gonna be such a sweet payoff and then they tell the punchline you're like yeah it was so good <laughs> you know mm-hmm. but then when you get to philippians chapter two uh, when it says, uh, therefore, let the same mind be in you as was in Christ Jesus. The the Marian book talks about that verse quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word for confess there is a Greek word, exomlageo, which means this. It doesn't mean confess. It means to openly and joyfully profess without reservation. There's not one sense of like, shucks, didn't do it in time. (laughs) And why is it above the earth? The angels have to do it on earth, us, and then under anybody that's already died or or in potential punishment or holding. Why is it that no one has a negative sense of like, shucks, Jesus is Lord, I missed the boat. Mm. Because the early church, and I say it in the Lenten devotional, especially on Holy Saturday, the early church understood Holy Saturday as more of a jailbreak. The day between Good Friday and Easter, Christ descended into hell to harrow it, to lay it flat, to bust down its gates, to set the prisoners free. We, we say this language all the time, but we don't know, we don't actually mean it because we say it like liturgically, not actually in reality. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that at the end of everything, everyone will openly and joyfully profess without reservation oh god is love and in love there is no exclusion or shame or blame but only restoration reconciliation (coughs) redemption renewal reclamation reparation and rescue um Mm. i've come to use those r words they're (laughs) they they summarize the gospel for me because i think Mm. previously in american culture i i kind of fell into that line of like Oh, salvation is a private thing, which is true. Mm-hmm. Individual. Individual, but actually it's a cosmic thing, which includes the individual. Transcend and include, mm-hmm. baby. So mm-hmm. <laughs> when I came across all these passages, and then you can do the same thing in Romans 5. Uh, for we know that in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. You're like, Why is it that we don't talk about these passages? For it's not that... Uh, was it the sacrifices of bulls could do anything repeated for Christ's sacrifice was done once timely for all. I mean, once for all. And that's a numerical reference. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I really think that what we have in America is a very far mutation from what early Christianity used to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Was that a lot of early Christians? They were universalists, right? For the first five or six hundred years, yeah, and then there were some followers two hundred years after <laughs> origin who really botched it, and mm-hmm. they were excommunicated for how they interpreted origin, and then he got dragged along with them. But here's the thing: um, their teaching was discredited or excommunicated because. They said all people will be restored because all people have existed since eternity. Like there's a pre-embodiment of the soul. Right. Mm -hmm. But actually, Gregory of Nyssa, the Cappadocians, Julian of Norwich, okay, uh, George MacDonald, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Mm -hmm. Soren Kierkegaard, Mm -hmm. 
uh, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham. All of these people came around to be like, oh, the restoration and rescue of everyone and everything. The entire cosmos is going to be apocatastasis brought back to its original position because God is all of our alpha and omega. What's fascinating is all those other figures have never been considered heretics. They're always considered mm. saints and they believed it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I once had a... Yeah, that's great. It's so beautiful. It changes everything. And here it also changes mm-hmm. Christian ethics because then your motive to be healthy and holy isn't out of fear of being punished or excluded. Now, mm-hmm. the only reason to be healthy and holy is because it's out of gratitude and because you actually believe it helps me to not mm. lie anymore, to cheat on my spouse, to covet my neighbor, you know, to actually keep yeah. the Sabbath. It just reframes everything. Reframes mm-hmm. it's everything. such a, light, a lightness and freedom to it, but also, yeah, I mean, joy and, and it's like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't need to go out and, and save my neighbor and, and get these numbers. And, um, right. you know, I, I think it, it makes you kind of devalue a person. It's like a, an achievement, like, oh, I got to save their soul. Or, you know, it could be just concern for them. But um, it's like, you know, there there's certain things that we can obviously help people grow in. But it's like everything will be okay in the end. You, yeah, you all will be well. At least that, that fear what what's beautiful is it kind of gives pe- other people the autonomy to come to Jesus in their own time. There's no That's impetus it. to mm-hmm. force or coerce or to convince them on your time schedule. Mm-hmm. Because right. sometimes I'll have conversations with people and they're like, I don't like Jesus. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. But in the back of my mm-hmm. mind, I'll be like, it's okay. One day you'll see God is love. It's <laughs> yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be... <laughs> perseverating over you because I'm not even your savior anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it is so funny because so many people are like, Oh, you know, like we can't save people only God can. But yeah, it's like, do we really believe that? Cause we're, we're trying really hard. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then the gospel becomes reframed. It's no longer come and follow Jesus and you'll be saved. Now it's, um, everything is being fixed in Jesus's name. Do you want to be a part of it? Mm-hmm. And it becomes an invitation rather than something else. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the world has got enough people condemning the world. We need some message out there that says this world is still worth being redeemed, fixed, healed, yeah. mended. Yeah, that, that kind of goes into the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's coming, but it's also now. And I think that yeah. you could do the same thing with like, Oh, hell, you know, Gehenna, whatever. It's like, if you, you know, aren't living by the fruits of the spirit, then you're going to suffer here on earth. Yeah. A hell on earth. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most common debates or, or let's say um, questions people have about the restoration of all things in Jesus is, well, that means everybody's going to get in. I'm like, yeah, what's the problem with that? Um, I have a quick story about that too, but some people say, so it doesn't matter how I live. And I said, no, no, actually (laughs) it says in Romans two, everyone will be held accountable for what they have done. The Jew first Mm -hmm. and then the Gentile, Mm -hmm. which means everybody will get in, but you're going to get a pretty strong talking to 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that there's something to be said a lot of times in the New Testament. So like the parable of the sheep and the goats, where it talks about the goats will be sent off to everlasting punishment. The word everlasting is actually in, in Greek. It's the word ionion, which means era. That's not everlasting. That's like a mm. season. Mm-hmm. And then the word for punishment doesn't mean punishment. It actually means correction curtailing and even pruning Mm. and so all the goats that didn't turn their lives around they didn't know how to live out of compassion they're going to go through a season of pruning so that Mm. they can look like a bush that's like healthy and whole and sprouting blossoms like it should that's a very different gospel than to say turn to jesus or you'll be punished forever Mm mm-hmm but we're yeah. dealing with a divine gardener, and that's so much more beautiful of a gospel. Right. It really reminds me of the story um, in, in Chronicles of Narnia of uh, Eustace um, and the dragon. You know, he, yeah, yeah, he puts yeah. on this, this gold thing because he was greedy, and he becomes a dragon. And then he's um, Aslan finds him, and Aslan is scraping all the scales off of yeah. him with his claws, and it's so painful. And he's uh-huh. crying, but underneath, he's himself. Right. He's, he's Eustace. The true Eustace. The true Eustace. There you yeah, go. yeah. That, I, you know, I've never connected those two. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> yes. That's so good. <laughs> the dragon scales. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also a beautiful line in um, uh, The Last Battle. They're mm-hmm. in the heaven scene. And so they're ascending. They're going uh, onwards and upwards, right? And they're mm-hmm. there and they come across a man who looks very confused. He's a soldier. And he's looking around. He's like, where am I? They're like, oh, you're in Aslan's home or something like that. And he says, I never knew Aslan. I knew Tosh or Tash. Mm-hmm. The devil figure. Yeah. The devil figure. He's like, I always lived my life in service and goodness and hospitality to Tash, not to Aslan. Mm-hmm. And then Aslan says beautifully, um, Everything I attribute to you these things. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Say it. I I I attribute to these things you did for him to me because the image you have of him was of me. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's sneaky. Yeah. So the there's also uh, I forget the the theologian, but he said the gospel is sneaky. God saw that we tend to worship man, so about God became a man. Hmm. <laughs> you hear the rhetoric you're like oh that's that's, that's great that's good <laughs> that's man wow so I, it sounds like you've also been on a, a journey of exploring some of that too oh yes what what's that done <laughs> for you how has that reframed it yeah um i mean like like i think we've been talking about it it's so much lighter and um less from a place of fear and you know i don't have to um you know feel anxiety or fear or condemnation for exploring things and questioning and um you know i i love i love david uh the, the you know in the psalms and mm. how much he was questioning and crying out to god you know it's relationship but you know be be honest um, sure you know there there might be times of silence you don't always you don't always get the answers and uh i don't think the purpose is to get all the answers but um how how can you make that practical in your your daily life um and you know what, what people are in different places and and that's okay and how how can i um 
have a living, living relationship with this person wherever they're at and where I'm at. And also, the more I can love my past self for where, where I was, the more I can love others where wherever they are. And yeah, it's a better gospel, man. Yes, I think what we've been shown, or and, and I think a lot of it's unintentional. I really think so. It's not. It's not all malicious. I think we we think we really should do another episode on uh, spiral dynamics in depth. Oh yeah, I um, love it. Do like five minutes on each of them. But uh, mm. we are prone to interpret our Christianity through what level of maturity we are at, and then we project onto Christianity our maturity not realizing it's actually far beyond us all. And so we've we've made the gospel we've we've made Christianity far smaller and far limited and far more fragmented than it really is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I yeah, talk about right. this with like college students and they get it, mm-hmm. man. They're like this mm-hmm. sounds like good news. They're like mm-hmm. uh, I was teaching a class a few weeks ago and on the way out I was erasing chalk from the board and one of my students yelled <laughs> out loud this class is lit <laughs> she's 20 and people are like millennials and Gen Z or iGen they don't care about mm-hmm. this I'm like no they mm-hmm. do it's just what you're presenting them on a core level they know mm-hmm. that what you're trying to offer them should be rejected mm-hmm. but they can't right. they don't have words for it yet and, yeah. and so can mm-hmm. you really say somebody denied the gospel or denied Jesus or said no to Jesus when they were given a faulty view of Jesus anyways? Yeah. They are right wow. to reject that, <laughs> you know? Yep. Man, that's great. Oh, man, this has been so great. Uh, so many good gems. And I, I just love how, um, yeah, you, you put, you know, symbols and you know, you go to the Greek, you know, you, you talk about church history, you, you put everything together really well in a, in a way that I, that I can't. So I'm just like, uh, let me give it to John and, and you oh. go for it. <laughs> Thank you. That's kind. What do you think's yeah. been, um, what's, what do you think's been really interesting from our conversation just now? I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I, I'm, I'm like a one-to-one person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that, you know, you, you, you know, you offer that alternate, um, way of looking at the gospel and we don't just have to, you know, reject it or, or see it this way. And, um, it becomes so much more alive and meaningful and, mm. um, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is a real treat, man. Yeah. This is, I was looking forward to it all week. So oh, yeah. put me in a good mood for the rest of the day. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, same here. I really appreciate you coming on and I look forward to our next episode. That's awesome. All right. Thanks, man. All right.